Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I'm going to institute a new thing. I haven't told anyone, even Mike, but I'm going to recommend that everyone participates in these phone calls, get some head cues, and edit them so that they're not too, and not just look out on your screen, actually print them out. And the reason for that is that I've been frustrated because I've had so much Yorktown work. I haven't been able to maintain or even get close to maintaining that 30 pages that I used to do. And it doesn't look like that's going to change. Yeah, we're, we're liquidating partnerships and selling companies and moving to do more energy transition. So the extra time I used to have for working on non-energy stuff is not there. But what I've decided to do, since I can't get back to that, is keep up to date with the latest 10 Qs or 10 Ks at the end of the year with the companies that we discussed. So I have three 10 Qs out in front of me, which I'm going to refer to today a bit. One is Tesla, one is Amazon, and one is Apple. And I have, let's see, I have others, which I don't think I'll get to today, but I have Facebook, NVIDIA, Alphabet, and uh, Microsoft. Now, I have copies of all these things out noise today, but I'm going to keep these copies here, and I'm going to add to them so that they're raw material when we have these Wednesday calls. So I'm hoping that a fair number of people who listen into the call will do the same thing, have the latest 10Q in hand, because what I plan to do is to look at the balance sheet, the income statements, the cash flow statements, and I'm confident that Mike and his partner, Jason, will be able to add, especially with these companies that are tech companies, will be able to add significant amounts of information to help us interpret what we see in the cash flow statement and the balance sheet. So I think this is going to be a good thing to do. And just to make sure that we give it a good shot, I would say most of the summer, Wednesday, maybe into September, I will be referring to these 10 Qs at least a couple of times during our 30 minutes. With that, I'd like to dispatch with oil and natural gas and commodities in general pretty quickly with the commentary that I think there's a better than even sense that the commodity pricing for oil, gas, net coal, iron ore, copper, LNG, LNG is kind of a special case, are all down. Other than the fact that the recent trends have been down, why do I think there's a better and even chance that the trend in the near months is down. I think what's going to happen, there's a great deal of backwardation in these markets. So oil may be 108 or something, but oil in three or four years is 70. What you see is the near months coming down and the near months coming down and the 23, 24, 25 price is staying fairly steady. But, you know, there's $30 of backwardation there. I think that what's going to happen is the backwardation is going to get smaller. Uh, it's already happened in Jeff. I mean, the near month was $8. Now it's $6. But the price out uh, a couple of years, 
still around 450. So it doesn't necessarily signify anything if you own EOG or some other favorite energy stock, Antero, Magnolia, you should hang in there because I don't think it's going to make that much difference. But that's what we're going to see, I believe. I think the markets just aren't going to be as tight. Now, this, does this translate into lower inflation? I don't know. I mean, lower consumer price index at 8%. If the consumer price index by the time we get to September, October is 4.5% or 5%, I mean, that's an improvement. That's a long ways away from where the Fed says they want to get their own measure of inflation, the personal consumption index, I think it's called, down to 3% range. But, you know, commodity pricing will help. In terms of how the markets are behaving, these companies have to have free cash flow. Basically, they cannot spend more than two-thirds of their cash flow, and they have to have unit production growth. That is extremely hard to do. And I've been through most of the first quarters of the companies I follow, and they're just kind of marginally getting it done. So it'll be very interesting to watch the second quarter. But if you have a company that can do that, you have a real value creator. Now, on interest rates, the problem isn't whether or not the Fed does 75 basis points increase in the Fed funds rate in July. The problem is the Fed balance sheet. Nobody knows. Nobody not the chairman of the Federal Reserve, not the Treasury Secretary, no one, not Larry Summers, kind of the shadow Federal Reserve chair. No one knows the impact of taking <clears throat> the balance sheet, having taken it before COVID from $4 trillion up to nine. If you put it in runoff, in other words, you don't reinvest the maturity and the interest coupon, and you start it down at the rate of a million to a year, no one knows what the impact of that's going to be. Maybe fine. There's about $2 trillion of excess reserves in the bank. May not have too much effect at all, but it is scary. Remember, the Federal Reserve balance sheet was under $2 trillion before 08, 09, and around 2010, that's because of very slow recovery from the Great Recession in 08, 09. The Fed started this quantitative easing, it built up its balance sheet. Pre pandemic, it got to $4.5 trillion. When they turned around and started to reduce it from four and a half to four, the markets were horrified. Then, of course, COVID happened and they were facing a national lockdown. So they basically took it pretty quickly from four trillion up to nine trillion. Now it's absolutely the responsible thing to bring it down and they have to do it. But the Fed funds rate going up by 75 the first time and 75 the second time, I mean, it gets a lot of press and whatnot, but I don't think that matters. Now, they, in December, they said they, a runoff would be $90 billion a, a month. And then more recently, they said the first three months of runoff, which I think are April, May, and June, they're going to go down $30 billion a month. So they're really chicken. Who knows what's going to happen here? But that's the thing to keep your eye on. In terms of what to do about the stock market, the overall market's down 20 or 25%. Clearly, it was higher than it would have been because of substantial buildup of the Fed balance sheet just kind of flooding our economy with liquidity. Um, the companies you want to own are the ones you can buy now and be happy five years from now or 10 years from now. And <clears throat> those companies are two types, I think. Ones that have very strong financial positions, more cash flow than CapEx and whatnot, so they're not kind of 
on financing or borrowing a lot of money. And they're also companies that have a competitive advantage so that they're going to take market share. Think of it this way. The growth in our economy, net of inflation, will not be more than 2.5%, 3%. So if you want a business that's going to grow at 10% or 12% or something, it has to be taking market share from someone else. And that just automatically, I mean, I, I'll stand corrected. Anyone sends in an email to Diane and she passes along that they can find a company that has those cash flow characteristics that's not a tech company. I'll be very interested. From my review of our economy, most of those companies are going to be tech companies. And with that, before I turn the mic over to Michael, if you look at the Apple 10Q, Vivian prints these things out for me and she edits them a little bit. But the page with the cash flow statement on it, so the Apple is a uh, September 30 year. So the 10Q for March 2022 is six months of the year. The net income for six months was $60 billion. In terms of non-cash charges, they had about $5 billion depreciation and about $5 billion of share-based compensation expense. You add that 10 to the 60, and that gives you 70. You annualize that, that's $140 billion. Their capital spending here is around $5 billion for the six months. So if you annualize that times two, that's $10 billion. So $140 less 10, $130 billion of free cash flow. When I used to keep the 32-page memo, Apple had gotten up to about $50 billion of free cash flow or 60. I think the only other company that had that kind of free cash flow was Exxon back when it was being run properly. Now that 50 or 60 has gone to 110 or something like that. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Now, the stock is up a lot. There's Huge number of shares outstanding because split and whatnot. They're 16 billion shares, but still, what a remarkable industrial achievement. If you go further in the 10Q, they don't have a whole heck of a lot of detail on how the business is going in the 10Q. But one of the things they do in the footnotes is they break down where their sales are coming from. And product-wise, the iPhones are really important. That was that has always been. Two reasons I've never owned the stock is concern about the dependence on us all buying replacement iPhones was the worrisome thing. And then the fact that almost all that equipment, iPhones and iPads and whatnot, are made in China, I thought was a troublesome thing. Well, shame on me. I've been making, you know, five, six times investment. But no, two, which is revenue, just to give you a, a sense of the size of this business, for the six months to March, they sold 122 billion of iPhones. They sold 21 billion of Macs. They sold 15 billion of iPads, wearables, and home and accessories and whatnot was 23 billion. And then services, where their profit margin is probably very high, 39 billion. But with 122 billion of sales from people buying new models of tra- trading in their iPhones, that's got to be, you know, half or more of that free cash flow. And Mike and I were talking this morning, three companies that, we, you know, we're trying to figure out 
for Tesla and Amazon. We're going to talk some more about them. But, you know, the weird thing is we're talking about Amazon. Amazon has prime customers. And we think that way more than half of all the households in the U.S. are probably Amazon Prime customers. If you think about it, and Mike will get into this in more detail, it's that same group, upper half in terms of affluence and whatnot, that are the people that have iPhones as compared to uh, Android phones. And then the people who can afford to keep two cars and one battery car, that's basically your Tesla customers. So one of the things that Mike and I were kind of not wringing our hands about, but noticing is in, in terms of evaluating these companies, it's ones that have strong competitive positions, but you're also dependent if there are 120 million households in our economy, you know, that the upper 60 million of those households, these three companies are awfully dependent on. And with that, what have I left out, Mike? I've tried to cover probably way too much, way, way too much ground and too little time. So uh, I'll leave it to Mike to fill in some of the holes. So on, on Apple, the only thing I would add is that services line really is probably the most important line item for Apple going forward. It's where the majority of their growth is going to come from. And it's also where they'll generate more profits because as Hunt said, it's a far more profitable piece. It's also convenient that they've implemented app tracking transparency, which has made it essentially they're taking the position that we don't like targeted advertising and they're building up their own ad network. Their own ad network actually has like kind of double effects. It provides opportunities for people that have software apps that they want to market to people within the Apple ecosystem. And then if you click on that app and download that app and pay to use it, Apple's also getting a 30% cut of the revenue that's generated there. So it, it is a win-win for Apple. I will stay out of the conversation as to whether tracking is good or bad or whether the industry should have it or should not. Because I think Apple has taken their position and we'll kind of see what regulators think of it. In general, it seems like they're more in favor of not tracking than otherwise. Now, I'm such a clutch on this stuff. I'm going to ask Mike to find what tracking is because we were talking about Facebook earlier this week. And I didn't really understand exactly what a Facebook or a Google, or for that matter, Apple's advertising business is getting paid for. It's not just uh, getting paid if someone clicks on your ad. They can actually track it so that they know whether or not you not only clicked on the ad, but they can track whether or not you bought the product. You know, it's just pretty powerful if you think about it. So. I fortunately for these calls and also for making investment decisions on these companies, I have access to Mike and his partner, Jason, because otherwise I've learned the oil and gas business pretty thoroughly over the years. And I kind of know something about energy industry broadly defined, but when it comes time to trying to figure out, you know, why a bicycle manufacturer would want to advertise on Google or Facebook or whatnot. You know, I'm really clueless, but over to you, Mike, so that uninitiated amongst us can understand what tracking means. Yeah, it's a good question because when somebody shows you an advertisement, for example, on the Facebook app and you click on it, you may or may not purchase a product. You may see an advertisement. Hey, this is a cool product. Go to the site, buy, not buy. 
advertisers are willing to pay a certain amount of money for clicks and that you can measure relatively easily within the app. And that's something that's Google has done for a very long time. For example, with Google search, you've always had that bar on the right where you've been able to click on advertisements today. They've always measured the clicks and it was a pay per click. And that pay per click was really revolutionary relative to advertising before Google, because before Google, you would pay for, um, for views. And this even goes back to the days of the search engines that came before them, but also like a billboard. When you pay to put an advertisement on a billboard, they're going to give you some statistics as to the number of cars that drive by in a given year or month. So that evolution to pay-per-click was revolutionary. The evolution to pay-for-conversion was even more revolutionary. So in the case of Facebook, what they do or did is they would set up a essentially a pixel that would reside on the website of the advertiser. And that way that pixel, which is just a little line of software essentially that could track your phone or your computer as you clicked on the advertisement, went to the website and then purchased or not purchased a product. That way you could go to Facebook and say, I'm willing to pay $50 for you to send me a conversion. So all that is to say, it used to be very easy to do that. Apple's made some changes because basically because the advertising industry didn't treat data very well. So I may sound like I'm capitulated between last week and this week, but that there's two sides to this perspective. The advertisers that want to track users say that we can deliver better ads directly to that user and they're going to have a better experience with advertising, which is not wrong. The flip side of it is, is that advertisers uh, that are collecting this data have historically been very bad about reselling user data, storing it in insecure ways and getting hacked. So Apple's looking at it from the perspective of saying, we don't think that anybody should have this data. Now, the fact that they have it is they think is different. And because they don't use it for tracking purposes, they kind of exempt themselves from what everybody else is doing, at least so far. Absolutely. It probably is common knowledge to most of the people on the phone, but if not to me, just to get into uh, numbers, Apple with all that cash flow, say 120 billion of free cash flow, Mike and I would say that if you think that free cash flow, $120 billion can be increased at the rate of 10% a year, which, you know, again, $120 billion is a huge sum, but if you assume kind of flat iPhone replacement, if it, you know, if it's the top 20, 30 million households out of the 120 million households, they may still have plenty of money after paying their utility bills and paying for their uh, gas or diesel or whatnot. But those are the people that own common stocks and with the stock market off 20 or 25% and the possibility it may go up some more, you, you would expect based on past experience to see a wealth impact. So what, how would it show up in Apple's business? Well, it would show up in people just keeping their iPhone 11 longer and not upgrading. And so if 120 billion, if half or more is coming from new iPhones, that's an issue. I mean, that, you know, if half of your 120 billion of free cash flow was kind of stagnant or even planted down, it's hard 
and services, let's say, I mean, services in terms of sales is going to be $80 billion a year. It's not inconceivable that on the $80 billion a year, $40 billion of that is the cash flow contribution. So you might be getting maybe 45 maybe 30 or 35 That might grow 10% a year because, you know, Apple's in an awfully strong position. But the iMac, the iPads, and the iPhones might be flat to down. So how do you move that $120 billion up 10% a year? That means every year you've got to have like 10 or $12 billion more cash flow than you had the prior year. So that's one test. I mean, amongst other things, kind of the law of large numbers. The other thing is valuation. At $150 a share, $16 billion shares outstanding, that's $2.2 billion. Well, you know, Mike and I would probably say, I'll give him a instance, you still have four, four or five minutes left to comment on this, that for a business that grows 10% a year, you should, you, you should be willing to pay 20 times free cash flow. Well, 20 times 120 billion, it gets you to the 2.3 billion. So, I mean, it, it, I, I know I'm ignoring debt. There is some debt there, but there is an awful lot of extra cash. So, you know, is Apple overvalued at $150? Uh, you know, uh, I, I'm a bit concerned about can the 120 billion, if, if, if you do this, think about, think about it this way. If your goal is to, uh, have a business that increases free cash flow, not income or not its revenue or its income, it's free cash flow, the actual amount of money that, you know, that you accumulate during the year in 10% a year. I think that means it would double in eight years. Do we think that Apple in eight years with 120 billion of free cash flow will have 240 billion of free cash flow? I don't, I don't know. Maybe, I, I mean, the inflated dollars, I guess. Uh, what what do you what do you make of all that, Mike? In terms of you and Jason trying, I know you've owned Apple before and probably have sold some of it as the value got up. But how do you think about Apple now? I think that actually the last couple of weeks of looking at this has been insightful. Apple's actually never had a down year of revenue, which is sort of fascinating. Um, so I think that this year will be a test of that. I think that they're in a, I think that Apple and the iPhone ecosystem has really become more of a consumer staple than a luxury good, if you will. I think that upgrading to a new phone, yeah, you can push it off one or two cycles, but you can't push it off a whole lot more than that. I know Hunt, you've managed to make an iPhone three last longer than most, but I think most people are sort of forced into upgrading to the next phone. The other thing is, would people downgrade to a cheaper phone, to an Android? I don't think they're really willing to do that either. I think once you're kind of tied into the ecosystem, it's a bit of a lock-in and it'd be very hard to switch. At least I feel that way. So I I think it's dependent on services. I do think they're going to get, I think probably the biggest risk that you'll see is maybe the regulatory risk. They could have a down year. You got to remember that people, a lot of the growth in the last couple of years, people were extra flush during COVID, reduced expensive on top of additional stimulus. And a lot of cases, people making more money than they had prior to COVID really set up a lot of extra consumer discretionary spending. So I guess that goes 
kind of against what I just said about the iPhone becoming sort of more of a staple, but I think it sort of bridges that gap in between a luxury good and a, and a consumer staple in today's world. That's go, absolutely go ahead. right. And one of the great things, because we got to finish up, one of the great things about bear markets, I mean, bull markets are much better than bear markets, but one of the great things about bear markets is there's something that you want, you've always wanted to own. And God knows I've been wrong, wrong, wrong on Apple. You establish a level and, you know, if it gets there, at least by third position or half position or something. You'll remember the last couple of Wednesdays we've talked about Tesla and Mike, I've got to do some more work, but Mike thinks somewhere around $500 a share, you're at that, you know, 20 times free cash flow. I don't disagree with his estimate of free cash flow. Every day of decline gets you closer to that $500 level. Next week, we'll focus in on Amazon and try to establish a level then. The other thing we have to focus on is, is 150 for Apple the same as 500 for Tesla? You know, I don't know. We have some more thinking to do about that. And then by next week, I hope, and I encourage you all to get the 10 cues because it'll make this discussion much more meaningful and useful and result in making more money with your uh, investments. I think the one that we ought to focus in on, as long as we're talking about big cash flow generators next week, we ought to add Microsoft. And with that, everyone have a great long weekend and stay well, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.